Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Mariupol fighters ordered to stop fighting. Donbass battle is hell, Zelensky says. The remaining Ukrainian fighters at the Azovstal steel plant have received orders to stop fighting and give up their defense of their last foothold in the city of Mariupol. What are we to make of this? It's Friday, so let's start the show the way we usually do. Let's turn to our first guest. He's a widely acclaimed speaker, writer, journalist, and political analyst. He has traveled extensively in the Middle East and Latin America. Caleb Moppin, as always, Caleb, welcome back. Sure. Glad to be here, as always. So hundreds of fighters evacuated the besieged facility in a negotiated surrender between Moscow and Kiev this week. But it's unclear how many are still inside. There are a couple of things here, Caleb. One, the fact that this is a negotiated surrender is a different narrative than what we were told on the front end. The fact that they can actually negotiate, to me, if they can negotiate this, they can negotiate an end to the whole thing. And we were told on the front end of all of this conflict at the steel plant that the fighters wanted to surrender, but many of them were told if they did, they'd be shot. So what do you make of all of this, Caleb Moppin? Well, I think it's a good sign that there has been a negotiated surrender from these fighters. And I think you're right in that this indicates that it could be possible to bring about some kind of ceasefire then de-escalate this con- uh, conflict. Now, we know that um, that $40 billion uh, that has, you know, was put forward, that is going to go through, and the USA is going to be sending all kinds of new weaponry and, and supplies to Ukraine. Um, but that said, I think the Ukrainian people are pretty sick of this. I think a lot of people on the Russian side are also pretty sick of this. Um, and I think that it, it's possible that there could be a de-escalation soon based on some of the signs I'm seeing. But we don't know that for a fact. And we do know that the British leadership and the American leadership very much want to prolong this, um, whereas it seems like on the European mainland, uh, some of the statements we've heard from the Pope, some of the statements we've heard from various German officials indicate there's a desire for de-escalation. So the fact that you know that there's plenty, it seems, within the NATO camp that are open to de-escalation uh, the fact that Russia has wanted to negotiate and de-escalate this from day one, uh, that all leads me to believe that we could be seeing, uh, you know, you know, at least some reprieve in hostilities soon. Um, I really hope that's the case. You know, I think one of the things that is obvious out of this, Caleb, is that there's a conflict of security interest in that the the European countries, their economic interests and their security interests with Russia are totally different than what the, the direction that the U.S. empire is leading them. We're seeing that there when you, if you take Germany, there's nowhere that they're benefiting. They were getting cheap gas, uh, cheap food, cheap energy from oil, uh, excuse me, from Russia. And they were able to have a thriving industry out of this. They get 
No more. They're not getting the cheap industry. They're not getting the cheap energy. They're more. They're closer to war, nuclear war, whatever the case may be. And their economy is absolutely crumbling. Do you think that the conversation is going on in the back rooms of 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 of, of uh, Europe that we're being led down the primrose path here by some people who don't have our best interest in mind? Oh, absolutely. Um, and the revelations about, you know, how they uncovered uh, some kind of Nazi factions within the German security services. Um, they'd been conducting these investigations. They had this information on these people since about 2018, but they kind of sat on it until now. Uh, it indicates that within the German state apparatus, uh, there is kind of a struggle for power going on um, and that various factions uh, that have different ideas about how to relate to Russia are contending for power and trying to change the situation and change uh, the way this is going. Uh, Germany has lost out. France has lost out. Italy's lost out. Um, and really, I mean, if you look at our economy here in the United States, we've lost out pretty much as well. I mean, look at the gas prices. Look at the price of food. Uh, I mean, we're losing out as well. Um, we see, you know, the Republicans kind of, you know, pointing that out as well. So, I mean, this is really a bad situation unless you're a big oil monopolist, unless you're a Silicon Valley uh, corporation that is looking to secure their monopoly. Uh, you know, I mean, this has been really a big lose out. It's like the, the world economy is being crashed in the name of, of hurting Russia. Russia's doing OK. Uh, and it's the, the rest of the countries that are going along with the United States and their efforts to hurt Russia that are economically suffering. Uh, you know, generally, when you have a weapon of some kind, the intent is to hurt the other person, not to hurt yourself. But this economic warfare seems to be having the, the opposite of its intended effect, or maybe not, which raises some interesting questions. Uh, so we're in a very, very strange situation. And my hope is that uh, the voices that are saying maybe we shouldn't you know, prolong this economic suffering and we shouldn't prolong the killing in Ukraine uh, just to hurt Russia, my hope is that they'll prevail. The Washington Post reports Biden hails Nordic move into NATO as proof of unity against Russia. And he's hailing Finland and Sweden's decision to join NATO as a watershed moment in European security. Uh, how much of that perspective articulated by the president is more sizzle than steak? Since I think Finland has come out and said, you're not putting nuclear weapons in my country and we're not going to host military bases. I think Sweden has said very, very much the same thing. And from what I understand, President Putin has said to Finland and, and, to, uh, and to Sweden, hey, if you want to join NATO, go ahead. But the minute that you put missiles in your country pointed at my country, you're going to have a problem the likes of which you really don't want to have and I'll add this other point. There are many Americans, I believe, that are asking, why in the world would we ever want to get into a fight to defend Finland or Sweden? Well, sure. And you add to that the fact that Turkey uh, is, you know, block uh, these new entrances uh, into NATO and that the Erdogan government, again, they tend to, you know, hedge their bets and, and see which side uh, is, is offering them the most. And in some cases, they'll go with Russia and China. In some cases, they'll go with the United States. Um, and it seems like we're in a situation where it's like, OK, if NATO is going to expand, but no missiles go to Finland, uh, you know, you don't have new new threats on on Russia's border, but they symbolically join an alliance to, like, make a statement and Russia says, OK, that's fine. Just don't bring any missiles. And they say, oh, don't worry, we're not. What exactly is going on here? 
Um, is this some way that the United States can save face? Is that, you know, oh, well, Finland joined NATO, so we suck it to Putin, and then they can, they can withdraw and de-escalate? Or, I mean, you have to wonder what's, what's going on. Are there scenarios for, for de-escalation where the United States can claim it won something uh, being, being figured out here? Um, you know, is Turkey, uh, you know, there's, there's been some calls to, to kick Turkey out of NATO simply because of, of this and because of some of the stances they've taken, also because of their purchasing of Russian weapons systems. All of this raises questions like there are, there are various scenarios, I think, being worked out. Scenarios for, you know, uh, what, you know, you reminds you of Richard Nixon and his, you know, plan for a quote unquote honorable end to the Vietnam War. They don't want to leave this situation looking like they lost. Uh, but it's not even clear what winning would mean in Ukraine. What exactly would winning mean in Ukraine? They don't really know. Um, it's gonna, the fighting is going to stop at some point. Uh, Russia is not going to be just you know, completely obliterated. That's not going to happen. Uh, and so at, at what point does the USA allow the government in Kiev to de-escalate? And how do they do it in a way that doesn't show complete and utter humiliation and defeat? How do they do it in a way that they can claim, well, they, they, they got something? And if that means NATO expands, uh, you know, that might be something they can point to and say they won something. It was all worth it somehow. Gail mentioning winning just made me think of Charlie Sheen, because when he was in his drunken stupor tour, that was one of his taglines. Winning! Winning! But anyway, I'm tired of winning. <laughs> Caleb, the Washington Post reports an online chat room invitation sent shortly before the Buffalo supermarket shooting by all by alleged gunman Peyton Gendron was accepted by 15 users, according to a person with knowledge of the messaging platform Discord's investigation into the matter. I'm going to look up this Discord platform. But at any rate, here's the bottom line. We're in a dangerous position, I think, in that the United States is lionizing literal Nazis, goose-stepping guys. They got swastika tattoos. They're running around screaming Sig Heil all over the place. And the United States is saying, those are the best fighters. They're the real tough guys. And these young 18-year-old people, impressionable minds are like, well, my government's saying that these guys are tough and man, they're really something else. They go online, they look them up and they're literal Nazis. Is it shocking that we're starting to see people with the same insignias, the same iconography as the Azov Battalion starting to run around doing things that the Azov Battalion would in fact approve of? Caleb, your thoughts? Sure. I mean, it's certainly interesting to point out that uh, the the ideology of the Azov Battalion and the very insignia of the Azov Battalion was the ideology of the shooter. Um, But it's also interesting to notice that mainstream U.S. media is quickly glossing over that and almost trying to turn things around and say, well, he did this shooting because of disinformation on the Internet. He did this shooting because there's not censorship, uh, etc., and uh, if you look at it, I mean, it shows that every time one of these horrific tragedies happens, there's an attempt to politicize it by somebody. Um, and the more details you look into this, uh, you know, I've heard some particularly outrageous attempts to to link it to people that are putting forward a class struggle narrative. Uh, when if you look at the details, this guy was not uh, not, you know, you know, de-emphasizing race at all. I mean, he was doing this with the intention of creating a race war. I mean, he murdered people because of their race. He specifically picked a, a an African-American neighborhood, a store in an African-American neighborhood, killed black people in the hopes of inciting black people and and white people against each other and, and leading to the creation of some kind of ethno state. 
Um, this guy was certainly not somebody who was trying to focus on class struggle politics and bringing people together and, and overcoming cultural divisions. He was doing quite the opposite. Um, the other thing is, you know, when you talk about the Discord server, um, that's what is particularly scary is that a lot of people want to pretend that the Internet, you know, the Internet is just this world. But there's a lot of people that are on the Internet, but the real world isn't like that. But apparently this guy was on the Internet getting psyched up. And and in a way, with this Discord server, it's almost like his shooting was performative. He was trying to impress his Internet buddies with what he was doing. Um, and that's particularly disturbing. And that's one aspect of the Internet that 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 is is something we have to figure out how to deal with as a society. I mean, the answer is obviously not more censorship, but you know, it, it used to be that somebody might have a thought that was that was problematic or, or might have a feeling that was a certain way. But, you know, they went on with their life. They went to school. They went to their job. They talked to their coworkers. They got over it. But now the Internet has created a way that if somebody has, you know, a negative thought or a negative way of dealing with things, instead of just kind of talking to other people in their daily life and getting over it, uh, they they find an Internet chat room with 16 other people who feel exactly the way they do. And then they build off of each other's negativity. Um, and pretty soon, whatever this negative thought or feeling that they had is, is compounded uh, by, by 10 times or 20 times. It exponentially increases. Um, and like the incel movement is a great example of that. These young men who have, have difficulties getting girlfriends or whatever. I mean, you know, instead of just kind of moving on or whatever, they find a bunch of other guys who feel that way. They develop a whole worldview centered around that. And, and then we see these shootings and we see other problems developing in our society. So the accessibility of information and the ability of people to quickly form communities around things that in the past they would never have done so, um, it, it raises some serious concerns as we head toward, you know, toward a new age. And I, I, we're going to have to figure out how to deal with this. And those who want to just kind of put this on the back burner, those who want to say, oh, the Internet's not real. No, the Internet's very real. I mean, this guy was performing for his Internet buddies. Uh, he, was, he was a white supremacist. He became a white supremacist on the Internet. He made friends with other white supremacists, and then he, uh, based on that, committed uh, vile hate crimes and murder uh, based on that. So, you know, I mean, that this is a new phenomenon that we're dealing with. I see some spin here in the in this Washington Post article. They write that this guy, the shooter, had been on this private server. He had been there for six months, compiling hundreds of postings that included racist screeds and explicit details of a plan for shooting black people at a store in Buffalo. They also say that the that all of this now. It illustrates how social media companies have been unable to stop their platforms from being exploited. But Garland gets kicked off of Twitter every other day. Garland I'm suspended from Facebook right now. I was going to say Gar- for, for for posting stuff about Nazis in Ukraine. Caleb, the spin on this about how the internet's hands are tied, they're unable to put a stop to this. What they seem to be able to stop the stuff they want to stop. But when you're on a private server talking about detailed plans for shooting black people in Buffalo and then you kill 10 black people in Buffalo, you seem to stop what you want to stop and let go what you don't want to stop. Am I making more out of that than I should, Caleb? No, I I think you're exactly on point that, uh, I mean, if a detailed plan is going up on social media to commit a crime, I mean, at that point, the censors should go off and say, wow, this is a person who's talking about committing hate crimes. 
making a plan immediately that should the sensors should go off instead they seem to go off when you say something that might criticize us foreign policy or or something like that it's it is a little bit selective and i think that that's absolutely true and that the the general way uh, that this kind of thing is handled where they just say, oh, this means more, we need more censorship. Well, no, I think it, it indicates that that the way social media is being policed is more political than it is about keeping people safe. Um, you know, I mean, look, I mean, they did change the rules on Instagram that people could not post pictures of self-harm. But for years and years and years, people were posting pictures of self-harm on the internet. Now, I mean, they should have immediately, the second people started doing that, said, okay, if people are posting pictures of self-harm on the internet in order to get sympathy or whatever, we should block that because that's going to lead to people harming themselves more in order to get the attention of putting it on social media. Um, And, uh, you know, but yet there was a a hold off on doing that. Um, And that's not good. And again, you know, pictures of self-harm might get a lot of likes. They might get a lot of attention. I mean, it's certainly something that, that grabs your attention when you're seeing someone, someone self-harming themselves. But there should be an ethical oversight that says, okay, we're not going to encourage people to harm themselves and post pictures of it on the Internet. Um, so I, I think that's, uh, that, that kind of indicates, again, the profit motive is, is one of the big problems here. Um, the fact that these social media companies are worried about how much money they can make they're not so much worried about how their users are affected. Um, there's pressure placed on them uh, over international stuff, foreign policy, et cetera. Uh, you know, but at the same time, everything they do is corrupted by this desire to make profits. And I think that that taints it all. Yeah. And, and the, the other part, I think, the thing to me is this. You know, I mean, if somebody writes something on Gmail, do you blame Gmail? You know, there, there's that other side of the mm-hmm. argument. And I understand. I understand. I'm not saying that I disagree with what you're what you're saying, but I'm saying this. But at the same time, the government is literally promoting Nazis. And I'm thinking to myself, well, if I'm not promoting Nazis, maybe people won't be in chat rooms saying Nazis are good. If I'm not like, yeah, we love those Nazis, maybe young impressionable minds might not be like, hey, you know, maybe Nazis aren't all that. I've been taught Nazis were bad, but now there are good people on it, both sides. Exactly. Now only one side, only the Nazi side is good. We the things have changed. At any rate, Caleb, your thoughts? No, I mean I, I've noticed that you know the Azov Battalion and their sympathizers are all over Facebook and Twitter and social media, et cetera, um, and they don't get removed. Uh, American Nazi groups get removed. Uh, people that are espousing that kind of hate here in the United States, but there has been an exception made on social media for those folks, uh, and it appears there has been a big effort uh, by the algorithms to kind of connect the white supremacists in the United States with these white supremacists in Ukraine. Richard Spencer. A very prominent white supremacist in the United States has been one of the biggest promoters of the Azov Battalion. He was one of the people at Charlottesville. Um, And it seems like there may be some kind of covert effort uh, to connect white supremacists in the United States with with white supremacists in Ukraine. We will find out eventually if that's true or not. But uh, everything seems to point to that possibly being the case. And if that's the case, that is extremely scandalous. The fact that uh, the U.S. government may, to some degree or other, be involved in helping set up some kind of Nazi international. Well, we know we're, the United States is trying to send them $40 billion. Uh, Caleb Moppin, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Sure. Always a pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Why Biden hasn't killed Trump's China tariffs and made imports cheaper. Advisors are split, and economists see little immediate gain for consumers. Well, what are we to make of this, and how logical are those economists and their thinking? Let's turn to an economist. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and former president of the National Economics Association, Dr. Linwood Tawheed. As always, sir, welcome back. Thank you. So they write, with the stroke of a White House pen, Biden could lower the cost of thousands of consumer and industrial products and strike a blow in the anti-inflation fight that he calls his top domestic priority. All he has to do is lift the tariffs on imported Chinese products that President Trump imposed back in 2018. But with his advisors split, the potential economic gains limited, and the danger of Republican attacks for being, quote unquote, soft on China looming, Biden is unconvinced. Dr. Tawheed, help us out. Help us understand whether or not there would be substantial gain for consumers. And to me, the real indicator here is danger of Republican attacks, because what that says to me is the Democrats don't have control of their own narrative and they're afraid of the pushback that they would get from Republicans. Help us out, sir. Well, in all of these things, there are there are apparently two different uh, uh, roads of opinion here, one the political and one the economic. And this is not the first time that the uh, Biden advisors on the political side have been at odds with the, the economists. Uh, the eco- economists are estimating that out of the 8.3% inflation rate that we're, we're at now, uh, reducing these tariffs would reduce inflation by 0.3%. In other words, we'd be at 8% instead of uh, uh, 8.3%, which is which is minimal. Uh, and and of course, if advisors are split, there are some, I suppose, who are thinking that you do this in order to show that you're dealing with inflation, which is what Biden says is his number one domestic priority. But on the other hand, advisors are saying, well, if you do this, you give you give Republicans something to beat you over the head with, uh, which which is probably going to happen as well. So there's a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation for Biden. Uh, The fact that this is being estimated as being very small if you remove the tariff also says that it was a very small change when you put the tariffs on, that, that it had very, very little effect. Uh, in one way or another, doing it was put on during the Trump administration, but but you know that 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 war against China, economic war against China that that Trump uh, enlisted in was was a failure. Uh, it it hurt Americans more than it, than it hurt the, the Chinese, and I suspect that in, in reducing the, the the removing the tariffs won't won't hurt the Chinese much, but it also won't help help Americans much. So it's probably not something that Biden wants to do, except it might signal, you know, this is virtue signaling that he's uh, trying to do something against inflation. It won't have, it won't have much of an effect on, on prices. And uh, that price, the, the, that effect will come way after the November election. So it's probably something that, Trump, that Biden will not do. 
Uh, another thing to notice, of course, is that the, these tariffs are on things like durable goods, refrigerators and, and washing machines, uh, clothing, which we uh, understand is a big import from China, and things like AirPods, which, which means technology. And uh, when, when you look at this list of things that the tariffs are on, it gives you an indication of what things are not being manufactured in the U.S., uh, pretty much, pretty much things that 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 U.S. citizens, consumers buy, and uh, are very popular in terms of consumption, uh, which means that these things, of course, are being made in China, and uh, so so the Chinese are certainly able to make um, uh, durable goods as well as technological goods, uh, which which makes the U.S. very dependent upon upon Chinese um, uh, manufacturing. You know, Dr. Tawheed, the this discussion to me just kind of puts an exclamation mark on the feckless nature of U.S. foreign and economic policy in that, from what I hear you saying, this really didn't hurt China in the first place. It hurt us a little bit, but not a lot. It was, let's show that we're going after China under the Trump administration. So they did something symbolic. Now, to take it off won't be much more than symbolic. It ain't going to hurt China, certainly, and it isn't going to help us again. It isn't going to fix the supply chain. So it just, as I said, it seems to show the feckless nature of our foreign and domestic policy because things are, it seems like everything we're doing is symbolic or political rather than, let me give you an example. China sits down with a five-year policy for economics to decide how they're going to run their economics from a, you know, uh, the perspective of numbers and figures and things that you can quantify. At any rate, what do you think about my position? Well, and, and quickly, China, and as you know, China's five-year plan is part of China's 10-year plan. Exactly. And we right, just right. are acting symbolically all the time. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it seems like the only groups in the U.S. that have a, a long-term plan, like a 30-year plan, is, is real estate, right? And that's because mortgages are at 30 years. The U.S. does not have an industrial policy. It, it doesn't have a long-term policy over over uh, what to produce, uh, services, manufacturing, and agriculture, all of those things together. It, it hasn't had that. And uh, the Chinese, of course, coming out of a communist system, but, but being very capitalistic now, have maintained their industrial policy. And their industrial policy there is beating U.S. lack of industrial policy. Uh, European countries have, have industrial policies. Germany has a very strong industrial policy. And even though they're shooting themselves in, in the foot right now in terms of going with the U.S. on these sanctions, they at least have a central planning process by which they can deal with, or at least they can attempt to deal with, with, with some of the, uh, the, the negative effects. The U.S. doesn't have that. It's all up to free enterprise, and free enterprise is really not up to the task uh, when you are in crisis. And, and so, uh, the, so the U.S. lack of planning is, is by design, but it is, of course, hurting, hurting the U.S. Uh, economy. Understanding that there's a... A numbers game in terms of economic policy. There's also a public perception aspect of of economics. And when people believe that things are better, people will act in that manner. Even though the China tariff issue, as you said, won't even have a, a it doesn't seem like it's going to have a half a point impact. It Could that be one tool in a toolkit? that could make a difference going forward. 
Are there other things that could be done to lower inflation and using this tariff issue as one tool in a toolkit? Well, the inflation that we, we're having now is, as we've discussed many times, is not an inflation. It's that, supply uh, side. The general public, right. It's not a demand side inflation, which is usually the way inflation is is talked about because the inflation fighting tool is in the hands of the Federal Reserve and all it can do is affect the demand side. This is a supply side inflation. This is because of a lack of supply. Look, the, the baby formula shortage is a perfect example that this is supply side. We, we don't have baby formula short, shortages because uh, the consumers are buying too much baby formula. Uh, we have it because a, a, a factory, a major uh, producer, shut down because of a bacterial infle- infection, which goes back to bacterial contamination. It goes back to uh, loosening of regulations during the Trump administration. That's a, that's, a, that's a domestic issue that has led to a shortage. Then we have sh- supply chain uh, crisis, uh, and China is shutting down again uh, to deal with COVID. Uh, and uh, that that's that's exacerbating the supply chain crisis, which was expected to go through 2022, but is probably now going to go through 2023. Uh, and and so what what the what the Biden administration needs to do is to address the supply side. Uh, that would be by investment in in uh, in in the U.S. in in terms of production, in terms of, of making sure that uh, that uh, there's an increase in in, um, in income uh, for for workers so that they go go back to work they can get full time jobs and so forth that that, that, that again is it would be part of an industrial policy so what the federal government needs to do is to is to address the supply side they're not willing to do that uh, and I think part of the reason they're not willing to do that is because they tried with Build Back Better. Uh, the Democratic bill was sabotaged by Democrats. They can't blame that on Republicans. And so since they can't talk about uh, Build Back Better anymore or supply-side issues, they can only uh, attempt to, uh, to, let, to, to make the public believe that they're doing something by raising interest rates, which is going to cause not, not much of a decrease in interest rates or inflation, but will cause recession. And if that begins to hit before the November primary, the, the the Democrats will have shot themselves in the, in the foot again. Uh, but but I don't think they have much choice except to try to pretend that they're doing something, uh, even though it won't be very effective. I want to follow up on something that you just touched on, that Abbott Laboratories is who makes most of the baby formula in the country. And during the Trump administration, they relaxed regulations. And as a result of the relaxing of regulations, there was a bacteria problem in Abbott Labs, shutting down Abbott Labs. It's important for people to understand, and we have said this on the show a number of times, that there are two sides of a regulatory issue. There's the business side, and then there's the consumer side. And we usually hear in the argument of regulation or deregulation, it's going to do better for business. But we say on this show all the time, you can never lose sight of the impact it's going to have on the consumer side. And we use thalidomide 
as an example back in the 60s, maybe it was the 50s, that thalidomide was thought to be this morning after cure for pregnant women. And what you wound up having were babies with, with deformed babies. So I just want to make the point to those listening, for those particularly on the uh, Republican side of the argument that demand, oh, there's too much regulation, there's too much regulation, there's too much regulation. There may be, but those regulations are there to protect consumers. So am I wrong to draw that, <laughs> that to draw it out as I did? No, 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 no. You're absolutely right. There are the, if, if you allow the quote free market to go uh, unregulated Mm-hmm. then you will you will end up with with uh, the consumers bearing the, uh, the the price of 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 inferior and even dangerous products now that's the way the free market is supposed to work the idea that if you put a dangerous product out consumers will learn that it's dangerous and they'll stop buying that product but but we're talking about baby formula and we're talking about a, a essentially a monopoly in the production of baby formula in this country, Abbott Labs is one of very of, of, of few manufacturers, and then when you allow that to happen, what you what you what, not only do you end up with bacterial infections, but you also, of course, end up with babies with dead babies are not getting the nutrition that they need, and and they have baby babies from contamination. Uh, you know, the, the idea that this would hit during this time when the Biden administration's uh, popularity is at its lowest, we're going into an election is just another one of the uh, additional storms in a, in, a, in a set of perfect storms leading to um, um, uh, certainly disaster for, for Democrats. But in this case, uh, this, this, this process with, with, with Abbott Labs called, was caused during the Republican administration. The Democrats are going to, are going to take the, the, the blame for it. Well, speaking of something the Democrats are going to take the blame for, they've they've uh, passed bills to send uh, to to uh, use forty billion dollars for the Ukraine crisis for a number of things. That's a long discussion. And I, I went to Ted Rawls' site. He has something interesting. He has some of the things that could be bought with that forty billion dollars, which is a six thousand dollars scholarship for every college student who is officially in poverty, um, a two thousand dollars scholarship for. Every college student, $410,000 for every public school, $1.3 million to every public high school. He looks at all of the things that could be done with this. Almost kind of sounds like a Build Back Better plan, but it's, uh, I guess, Build Nazis Back Better. Anyway, your thoughts on the $40 billion, Dr. Tawheed? Yes, uh, you know, there, there are two sides to this $40 billion going to Ukraine. Half of it is going to to weaponry, and so it will go into uh, weapons manufacturers' uh, uh, profitability. And and by the way, it is almost complete profitability because these weapon manufacturers are taking uh, weapons out of their warehouse that they were unable to sell. And uh, these are the weapons that they're sending to Ukraine. Many of many of these weapons don't work uh, and, and because they're they're so old. And so this is this is uh, half of this. The twenty billion dollars is going into. Uh, weapons manufacturers' coffers. The other, which is supposed to be humanitarian aid, which is, is uh, at least by the by the PR, is supposed to go into the pockets of of everyday Ukrainians, is in fact going to go into the pockets of of uh, Ukrainian oligarchs and and organized crime. There will be very little of this that will get in, into the pockets of of everyday Ukrainians. 
but but you know this is this is um, a, a patriotic thing to do, so that even the progressives in in Congress who who should be pushing uh, against this and pushing for forty billion dollars for education or healthcare or other kind of things, uh, find that they're 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 on board with this, uh, even though this will not help Ukraine, and uh, and it could be you're right it could be spent here for for various things that that Americans want. It, it, it really does seem as if as if the American public is uh, realizing that forty billion dollars is a lot of money. I mean, we've been talking about trillions of dollars, but forty billion dollars is still a lot of money and can and could do a lot in the U.S. Uh, in an economy that is one uh, facing inflation, uh, but also uh, will be going into recession. People will be will be losing their jobs as a result of uh, Fed uh, interest rate hikes. And, and, and so there is this pushback um, that, that doesn't seem to affect what Congress does uh, because it doesn't affect congressional donors, but it does. It is alerting the general public that money is being misspent, that charity, which should begin at home, is, is uh, being, being uh, sent other places, uh, that, that Ukrainians will have pensions when, when Americans are losing their pensions. I mean, all of this. All, all, all of these different things that can be can, can be said that uh, that shows that the Congress is not taking care of the American people, but uh, apparently are concerned about folks elsewhere. Uh, two things as we get out. One, to the point of the money going into the coffers of the defense industry, this also, and we were saying this at the beginning of all of this, that this could very well be part of a payoff for the early withdrawal from Afghanistan. And the other point is with the Russians blowing up the weapons as soon as they arrive in Ukraine, just like the money won't make it down, trickle down to the people of Ukraine, the weapons won't make it to the battlefield because they're getting blown up as soon as they get into the country. Uh, yes. So, so, you know, this is uh, that, 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 uh, the, the, the Russians, you know, uh, the, certainly the narrative from the, from the mainstream media, even, even so-called progressive media is that, is that the Russians are losing every, every day. Now the surrender uh, from the uh, from the Nazis in Mariupol should be a perfect indication that that the Russians are, are are not losing that they're succeeding, but but the mainstream media has turned this into an evacuation instead of a surrender, uh, continuing to spin that that narrative is falling apart, uh, and 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 U.S. Uh, citizens, particularly those who can go on social media, which is most of them, are, are understanding that there are Nazis in in Ukraine. That the uh, the Russians have uh, surrounded them in Mariupol, and that they're now surrendering, and so uh, the the ability of mainstream media, corporate media, corporate media to continue with this narrative is 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 falling apart, and and the idea that you're going to send forty billion dollars over to to Ukraine is also part of that narrative that that's falling apart. Um, uh, you know, pers- persons who have been been um, uh, I, I guess reporting. That the, that propaganda is happening on both sides uh, have been have been demonized in, in America as as uh, you know uh, Russian bots or or, or uh, you know companions of Putin and so forth. But 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 uh, social media means that that the, the real narrative is coming out, including not only um, narrative but also video of things that are going on. So 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 it's uh, you know it's. Well, uh, hopefully that 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 continues. This 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 information governance board 
is uh, is not going forward. Uh, it was a bad idea, and um, uh, it 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 uh, the, the Biden administration is really kind of flailing and trying to get a hold of the narrative, but it but it's uh, it's falling apart. Dr. Linwood Tahid, as always, sir. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate that analysis, and as always, we look forward to having to having you back. Have a great weekend. Thank you. You're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. U.S. deepens Ukraine commitment with $40 billion in aid and an expanded NATO, or an attempt to anyway. Biden and Congress yesterday deepened U.S. involvement in the response to the Russian military intervention in Ukraine. The Senate has voted to finalize more than $40 billion in new military and humanitarian assistance, while Biden and top lawmakers lent firm support to what could be the most significant attempt at expansion of NATO in nearly two decades. What are we to make of all of this? Well, let's turn to our next guest. We're joined by a pediatrician and cur- who currently serves as a national board advisor for physicians for a national health program. Uh, she's a public health advocate and activist, Dr. Margaret Flowers. As always, Margaret, welcome back. It's great to be with you. We're also joined by a diverse communications professional. He has a background in leading communications departments, being a communications professor. Uh, He's a TV news correspondent for numerous networks domestically and internationally. Dr. Colin Campbell, as always, Colin, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. So, Margaret, let me start with you. $40 billion in aid to Ukraine. Ukrainians will now have pensions that Americans don't have. They'll have access to gasoline that Americans are paying more and more to pay for. They'll have food on their tables while many Americans are struggling to feed their families. Margaret, help me understand politically the logic behind this. Mark, Dr. Margaret Flowers. Yeah, I mean, I share your what I perceive as your outrage over this. While we have so many crises going on in the United States, we're just seems like just sending more and more. First, it was millions. Now we're into the billions of dollars, you know, going to Ukraine. But I think the United States has been very clear about, you know, what this is about. It's a proxy war against Russia. There's no interest in ending this. It's it's this is part of the United States national security strategy of great power conflict with Russia and China to try to maintain a grip on power as the world is becoming a multipolar world and the United States can no longer dominate it the way that it has for all these decades. So, um, you know, we're going to continue to see this pouring of money in. And I saw a tweet the other day that I thought was really appropriate with something to the effect of like, the United States is not really a country. It's just a giant arms, you know, manufacturer and, and seller. And that's what it feels like, right? You know, we're just no unlimited money for that. But COVID protections, student debt, health care. I mean, forget that, that Congress can't seem to do it. Dr. Colin Campbell, let, let me add to this. I believe that President Biden could have avoided this whole thing 
if he had sent a very simple letter to President Putin after they came out of Geneva, when Putin said, I'm sending you my demands in writing, I want your your response in writing, and Biden could have said, you know what, we're not going to put any more arms, any more NATO arms or troops in Ukraine. We will withdraw the ones that are there, and we will not expand any further towards your borders. That simple letter, I don't think we have a conflict. Your thoughts, Dr. Colin Campbell, on this $40 billion in aid when you can't get Bill back better through? Yeah, I mean, he couldn't have done that without asking his handlers first, right? I mean, that's a lot of money that is being made when keeping troops or trying to supply members of Ukraine with weaponry. That's a lot of money that the United States is uh, that not the United States is making, but companies in the United States are making. Uh, just to put things in perspective, we just approved a $40 billion aid package, and I think Russia's entire military budget in 2021 was about almost $66 billion. And so that kind of gives you a perspective of how much money we're putting into this. But I think this is a calculation by the Biden administration to show that they still are willing to put up money to hold on to whatever influence they're trying to keep in that region. They want to uh, show some level of dominance. They believe that uh, putting this money up will show that they support NATO, that they support their, they support their allies, and that they won't abandon them, keeping um, a kind of a hegemonic dynamic in that area of the world, which, of course, is antagonistic to Putin, of course. But the United States is continuing to, or at least the Biden administration and those who align with the Biden administration are willing to throw this money at it to show that uh, that they won't be defeated by outside forces and to show a level of commitment to allies. As we know, the two Scandinavian countries now want to join NATO as well. They're trying to work things out with uh, some other details, obviously. I guess we can talk about it in this, in this cast. But, uh, yeah, the U.S. definitely wants to show that it's still a dominant competitor when it comes to geopolitics and definitely militarism. Margaret, if I could add this, if you look at it and you read what it is, so we're going to be, according to this, the U.S. is paying for health care. The U.S. is paying for pensions. The U.S. is paying for energy and heat for people's houses. In a nutshell, the United States has adopted a country on, on Russia's border. If Russia adopted Mexico, there would surely be a war. And let me add this. Meanwhile, at the same time, the U.S. is saying exactly the same things about Ukraine, about about Taiwan. So it's clear that the United States is going to the border of Russia, arming the uh, government and arming a country to oppose Russia on their border, doing the exact same thing on Taiwan. Uh, Taiwan. So there's three great powers, and one of the great powers is going to the borders of the other two, arming them and making aggressive military moves against them. I, I don't see how this passes through the smell test with most Americans, but Americans like listen to it and they're like, yeah, we got to oppose Russia. Yeah, we got to oppose China. And they don't realize what we would do if Russia and China were doing the exact same thing to us. Margaret. Oh, no, absolutely. And it's so interesting how like the way that the corporate media is framing this, you know, and oh, we have to strengthen our security on Russia's border and China's border and, you know, painting this as a positive thing. The majority of the world is standing with China and Russia. You know, the global south 
they understand the way that the United States is, that this is a power grab by the United States, and that the United States is not a country that can be trusted, relied upon. The world has already become multipolar, and the U.S. is just refusing to, you know, recognize that. In fact, there was a report a number of years ago by the Pentagon called the Post-Primacy Report, where it recognized the U.S. was losing influence globally. But the response was, well, we need to pour more money, more, you know, more uh, intelligence, more military aggression. And that's what we're seeing. The dying empire is lashing out and throwing, you know, wasting so much of our resources on what's going to be fruitless and ultimately will isolate the United States and hurt the people in the United States as well as others around the world. Colin Campbell. Uh, I think that it's really interesting to see how much money the U.S. is pouring at it and how much media attention that this conflict is getting. Uh, it's almost as if you have to really scour the news to find out all the other issues that are happening domestically here in the U.S. that are affecting people on a daily basis. Um, and I think this is, again, one of the reasons why the Biden administration, why the president's poll numbers are not very good. It's because many feel that he's disconnected from the American public. Uh, this, although the U.S. seems to have a keen interest in trying to uh, support Ukraine to be victors in this conflict, you have a lot of people in the United States who are suffering right now, and a lot of people are looking at where the priorities are for the, the nation, where the White House is really centering its focus, and they feel that they're being neglected. So when you look at Ukraine spending, you know, roughly, what, $5 billion a month, uh, and the U.S. is just pouring money into it, there are people here saying, well, we can't get baby formula. We can't pay for our health care, for uh, basic necessities. Why are we spending billions of dollars over to this other nation when uh, seemingly they couldn't care less about us? To uh, Margaret, uh, to Colin's uh, point about Biden's poll ratings, his approval rating sank to 39 percent in a poll released earlier today underscoring the challenges he and the Democrats face heading into the midterms. The Associated Press Nork Center for Public Research poll showed that 20 percent of adults believe the economy is good, which is down from 30 percent last month. Among Democrats, 33 percent said the country is heading in the right direction. That's down from 49 percent a month ago. Uh, Joe Biden is slipping tremendously in the polls. We're close now to the midterms. Uh, what say you, Dr. Margaret Flowers? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, and and he was slipping in the polls before the conflict in Ukraine. And I think that there was this great hope. You know, the Biden administration failed on the COVID-19 pandemic. Nobody's talking about, by the way, the fact that our numbers of cases, daily cases in the United States is starting to surge. You don't hear that in the in the corporate media, but that was a big failure that they tried to distract from, you know, with this conflict in Ukraine. And the whole idea, I think, was that people would be, you know, united around the United States, supporting the people of Ukraine and supposedly supporting democracy and, and sovereignty there. Uh, but that hasn't worked out. As you know, as Colin pointed out, folks are suffering on a day-to-day -day basis. They see all these things that President Biden promised that aren't happening, and and instead they see all of this money getting poured into another country. I think saying that the U.S. adopted it is very appropriate. Uh, people can only be fooled for so long, and majority, you know, people in the United States have majority support for things like universal health care. 
things like, you know, worker right protections and affordable housing and cutting military spending. But the government's not doing any of these things. Uh, Colin, if I could add this to it, it seems odd to me. I've been watching politics for a long time to see a time when everyone who has two brain cells is saying this is going to be biblical, an apocalyptic destruction of the Democratic Party in November. And they haven't figured out that they have to do something domestically. They have completely disregarded all domestic policy. And it's like everybody but them is like, well, you know, you guys are done for. And they're like, hey, look over there. We got to send some more money to Ukraine. Your thoughts, Colin? Yeah, I think sense of negligence almost. And, and this is why. When you look at the previous administration, what was one of their one of its top slogans? America first. So by contrast, when you have a more foreign policy based administration and lots of money and resources are going there, there is this big chasm of attention that people recognize right off the bat, especially because of that dynamic where one administration whatever fault, other faults it had, we could, that's another conversation. But one of their, their focuses, at least in their marketing and promotions, was America first. When you have the administration coming right after it, that's immediately succeeded, that seems like, okay, Ukraine first, people are going to notice that right off the bat, and it's going to look even worse than if it had not been that dynamic in the first. And Margaret, you know, the, the same thing to you. And one of the things that is striking me about a, a lot of this narrative, we, we, we did, the, there was a story that we talked about uh, earlier in the show about why Biden hasn't uh, done anything about China's tariffs and one of the, uh, the tariffs on China. And one of the things was that his advisors, they're afraid of the, the danger of Republican attacks for being soft on China. But I would, I would take that fear and expand it. Not only does that have to do with tariffs on China, to me that really demonstrates the Democrats don't have control of their narrative. They don't have any ideas. They aren't really standing on anything that's based morally or based substantively, so they don't, they can't defend their actions because their actions make no sense. Right. You know, and that's the thing about the Democrats is, you know, the Republicans are very clear about what they stand for. It's not what the majority of people in the United States stand for, but they're very clear and they're not afraid to say it. The Democrats, I think, are a very conflicted party because they try to make themselves appear as if they care about things that the, the majority of the public care about. But then in reality, their actions don't match their words at all. You know, they, they're just another party like the Republicans serving the interests of the of the wealthy. And, you know, so how do you how do you even have a strategy when that's the basis of your party? You say one thing and, and do another. You know, they're running out of ideas because they're they're uh, just a very conflicted group. Colin, same thing to you. And this reminds me of an adage from that uh, brilliant philosopher, Mike Tyson. 
everybody can fight until you get punched in the face. Right. Yeah, and it seems it seems as though now they're taking a whipping, man, and they got nothing. Uh, let me add this. And you know what? The Republicans are going to like unanimously, all except for a few, vote for that $40 billion. And then in November, they're going to beat them over the head with it and say, you gave $40 billion away when you should have. I mean, who doesn't see that coming? Colin. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's very obvious. And what the Biden administration seems to be doing is a lot of performative measures. And it doesn't really and the American public is saying, listen, we're not falling for it. You know, we can't uh, fill our cars with gas. I even got a call from my sister yesterday in the rare conversation. We're talking about gas prices. I don't think I've ever discussed gas prices with my when there's so many other things to discuss. But that seems to dominate a lot of our conversation. And I can only imagine a lot of other Americans are the only reason I'm not is fully electric car. But <laughs> that's not to say that it's definitely problematic from that standpoint alone, just gas prices. Never mind food prices. Went grocery shopping today, definitely paid more for my eggs and my fruit than I normally do. And that's going that's probably happening to millions of Americans. Then as we talked about in this pod, in this cast already healthcare, and all of these other things that just make our quality of life better, you know, that just help us to wake up every day are getting more and more expensive. And so when you look at that, and the, again, where the administration's attention is, a lot of people are feeling neglected. And they're, they're looking across uh, overseas and they're saying they're getting more attention than we are. We can't stand for this. Our vote is going to matter a lot more in November, and it's not looking good for the Biden administration. And, and two things, Margaret. One, as uh, Colin was talking to his sister, my 20-year-old son called me from the gas station as he was filling up my car and said, <laughs> Daddy, do you realize how expensive <laughs> gas is? <laughs> yes, son, I do, since I'm the one paying the bill. But the fact that the light came on in his head, oh, my God, this is insane. But the other thing, Margaret, that strikes me is that when you look at what Joe Biden ran on last year, or now I guess a year and a half ago, when you look at the platform that he ran on, he was touching on the right points. He just now can't deliver. Right. Well, and that's the story of the Democrats, right? They make all of these promises. We're going to we care about these things, health care, student debt, the climate crisis. But when it's a party that's dominated by corporate you know, power and wealth, they can't give the population in the U.S. these things. And so it's, it's the classic, you know, they make these promises. And as soon as they're elected, they continue to serve the, the corporate interest. And uh, that's why you have to keep organizing. Dr. Margaret Flowers, Dr. Colin Campbell, thank you both so much for your time today. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. Enjoy your weekends. And uh, Colin, enjoy that electric car since you don't have to put gas in it. And we look forward to, we look forward to having you guys back. All right. Thank you. Take care. Look forward to returning. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned.
We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. RT has a piece, Is the West at War with Disinformation or Dissent? As populism rises in the West, so do crackdowns on narratives that deviate from those of the state. What are we to make of all of this? Well, it's Friday, so that means it's panel time. Let's start with our first panel. We're joined by a writer at thepolemicist.net and Counterpunch. He's the author of The Battle of Ukraine and the War. It's part of Jim Cavanaugh. As always, Jim, welcome back. Thanks for having me. We're also joined by a political cartoonist and syndicated columnist, Ted Rawl. Ted, welcome back. Thanks for having me, too. So when uh, President Biden announced on the 27th of April that a new disinformation governance board would serve the Department of Homeland Security, it was just the latest turn of the screw on freedom. This time, it's an effort, it's an affront to citizens' rights to diversity of information. Uh, Jim Cavanaugh, the outrage of the announcement about this disinformation governance board really pressured the administration to have to, quote unquote, pause it. I don't think this thing will ever rear its its ugly head again. But one of the things I found very interesting was, particularly in the Washington Post, the article about the disinformation governance board and its retraction was disinformation. Jim Cavanaugh. Yeah, that was Tela Lorenz wrote that article. Uh, and, you know, it is a crazy article because it, it just contradicts itself a little bit. It, it tries to insist that though this is a disinformation governance board wasn't going to uh, be doing anything except, you know, combating human trafficking and things. But then it says the criticism of Nina Jankowicz is, dis- is the disinformation that we had to, is exactly what the disinformation that we had to, that she was going to uh, combat. So it really was acknowledging <laughs> that it, you know any criticism of a government policy can be disinformation, and that's what it was. Plus the fact that it, it you know it described the process by which uh, criticism of this government's board and and Jenkowitz's role in it spread and was amplified as if that was some kind of nasty conspiracy problem. Oh, people started talking about this on the internet and. People started making criticisms of it, and we got, that's exactly the kind of disinformation we can't have. And, and Jim, it was people from the far right, all of like us. Yeah, it was it was far right wing nuts like Garland Nixon and and myself. Yeah, all came from the far right. You know, it's it's completely nuts. And you know, this was the Washington Post telling this 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 incredible disinformation story about what happened over the past couple of weeks regarding this disinformation bureau. And they just, they demonstrate their mindlessness. Really, this is a, 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 there's a logic and there's a, there's an ignorance an ignoring of what happened and how it happened and what the significance of it was. That's just incredible. And they're damning themselves by demonstrating, you know, this is exactly what we have to fight is the kind of criticism that came from all sides came from the ACLU, came from the Electronic Freedom Foundation, came from, you know, anybody who was concerned about civil rights and freedom of speech uh, from left to right to libertarian. But they found out a way of characterizing it as only far right and as, as some kind of pernicious conspiracy that is exactly the kind of thing we have to fight. 
namely public criticism of governmental policies. Ted Rawl, same point to you. And I'll add this to it. In another story that we were discussing, uh, it was about the Biden administration's reaction to uh, or trying to decide whether or not to remove the sanctions on China to deal with inflation. And one of their concerns was going to be pushback from the right. So what this really demonstrates to me is they're so tone deaf and they're so void of substantive policy that they can't come out and defend what they do because what they do makes apps is defenseless. Ted Rawl. Uh, well, it, it's defenseless. And on top of that, they're incompetent communicators. I mean, it's all uh, maybe I'm sorry. I think I should. I think I should have said indefensible, not defenseless. Uh, I, I think and, indefensible. And I, and I would have used the word malicious. <laughs> indefensible, because I don't want Jim Cavanaugh to correct my English. Indefensible. And it is. And, but it is a uh, it's just I mean, it's it's it, what is so shocking in these kinds of. Uh, communications uh, crises is, you know, you just ask yourself, was there no one in the room, you know, when this was first conceived of, who said, really, how do you think this is going to be perceived? How do you think uh, people are going to respond to a government board uh, that, that has, you know, that has this Orwellian title? <laughs> and even if it's the most well-intentioned thing in the world, how do you think people are going to take it? And the fact that there's no one in the room who either says anything or there is someone and they're shouted down or ignored or more likely there's everybody's thinking it, but no one wants to say anything. Um, you know, it kind of tells you a lot about how out of touch the government is from the people that it's supposedly, uh, you know, appointed and elected to serve. It's a, a very it's very perplexing and, and, and puzzling, really. You know, uh, just really quickly, Garland, I've been saying to people for a very long time. And Ted saying, was there anybody in the room? Put me in the room. I can do it, and I won't charge them. I can mess it up just as bad, and I won't charge them as much money. I'll save you money. You'll get the same bad result. It just won't cost you as much. Go ahead, Garth. Uh, let me add this. Because the Democratic Party now, because the people in the room are Liz Cheney and Max Boot and Bill Crystal. These people are fascists. They're great. Yay. You know what? We're not going far enough. That's what the people in the room are saying. And afterwards, they're saying we didn't push back far enough, hard enough. We shouldn't listen to anyone. Here's an example. Now, Twitter is going to enhance censorship over Ukraine. Post about Ukraine conflict will be labeled or removed if experts designate them as misinformation. Jim Cavanaugh, let's be let's get to, you know, be honest. We know what they're doing. This is narrative control. This is what the CIA does. They're disguising. It's just like they're humanitarian and their human rights. They are doing evil and calling it good Fighting in hope democracy. that they can defend in hope that the saps will all believe them. Jim Cavanaugh. Well, as a disinformation expert, uh, I will, <laughs> you know, put myself out there and as a, a source of, as a judge and jury of what's right and what's wrong and what's disinformation and not, you know, and I'd like to know who actually is doing it, you know, and who thinks they have the right to do that and why Twitter is, you know, bastardizing itself. I know why they're doing it, but you know, this is, as you say, I mean, this is narrative management. It's, a, it's, it's keeping the narrative in the, 
bounds of the Overton window that the establishment of the deep state wants. And this is war censorship. You know, in this context specifically, this is you cannot say something about Ukraine that we don't want to hear and that won't help us get the American people to go along with $40 billion or whatever we want to do to make war in Ukraine. And that's very, very dangerous. And, you know, we're, we're, we're in this situation now. And uh, uh, even nobody's voted for war with Russia. And that's what we're in. We're in a war with Russia. And that's what they're going to use Twitter. And Twitter is going along with being an enforcement arm of war censorship. Ted Rawl. Uh, you know, it, it is true that, you know, everything, that we are awash in misinformation. Uh, it's just that it's the parties that are shouting the loudest about it that are often the guiltiest. I mean, this past week, Russia scored a victory in Mariupol. Uh, they, um, the, the Azov Battalion uh, soldiers, uh, neo-Nazis, surrendered to uh, Russian forces and were taken prisoner. Um, but you wouldn't know that to read the New York Times, the Washington Post, NPR, the AP, the, the, the language that they used that was literally cut and pasted from a Ukrainian government uh, press release was that their mission had ended. And, well, I suppose it's true that their mission had ended uh, and, and that they had been um, and that they had either, in the words of the AP, like up and left. She said they left or. Uh, you know, it's like they, I don't know, they took the bus or something. Um, and the, or, yeah, they were evacuating was the word. That was all over the place. They were evacuating. Well, I mean, they weren't really evac Evacuation is a word that has a specific meaning. And, it, uh, and the implication in war is that when you're evacuated, you're evacuated, you know, by your side. Uh, your guys come and take you away back to safety. Not that you've been taken prisoner and that you've surrendered. Um, so, and, you know, it's, it's how can people trust these outlets? I mean, they just can't. And the thing is, it's the propaganda is so thick that it's getting to the point where you don't really have to pay a lot of attention to the news to be able to suss it out. It's, it's getting so brazenly obvious. There's a report today. The Biden approval rating hits new low in AP poll. His rating sank to 39 percent in a poll released earlier today. And this is an, an AP poll. It's not just, you know, Wilmer Leon asking some sixth graders on the corner what's going on. The Associated Press, Nork Center for Public Research, showed his rating has dropped to its lowest point. Uh, roughly 20 percent of adults believe the economy is good down from about 30% earlier uh, last month. Who are they? Who is that 20%? It's like, hey, man, things are going good here, buddy. It's Well, it's 20% of the 1%. Uh, among Democrats, 33% said the country is heading in the right direction. Well, that's Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer. Um, Immediate family. Exactly. Those that have ice cream in her refrigerator. It, it is for them. Uh, <laughs> which is down from 49% a month ago. Uh, Jim Cavanaugh, we're, we're up against the midterms, and this ain't looking good. Uh, uh, one other number I just saw. 58%. So he's got a, what, 40% approval rating, 58% disapproval rating. Right. He's 18 points upside down. So it's a sad day in Mudville, Jim Cavanaugh. Yeah, the, the, the Times had an editorial specifically about this, but it was about they, they had a good line, a good title. It was the Democrats are facing an extinction level event. 
<laughs> and uh, and uh, I think they are facing a kind of electoral and fictional level event uh, in this November, definitely. And what have they got? I mean, who are these people? Biden and Harris and Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. I mean, these are all dinosaurs and they can't make two sentences. And, you know, uh, and the policies and, and the actual state of the social economy is terrible and getting worse. And they do nothing about it. So, you know, everybody, again, this is one of these things everybody knows and sees and experiences this. But the, the, the pretense in the dominant section of the media is that, well, things are okay, he's doing the best he can, and, you know, just a few things are in his way, if only the Republicans get out of the way, and if only if Russia and Putin wasn't such an evil person, you know. But this is... The, a failure of decades of policies, first of all, Republican and Democrat, that he's done nothing about. And, you know, he's incapable of actually, I think, people are realizing that he personally is not in charge of anything, including his own mind, and, and that nothing's going to get better under this administration. Ted Rawl, I'm, I'm glad that Kavanaugh used the word dinosaur because I was part of my question to you is as we go to the midterms, if the Democrats take the whipping that I that I see coming on the horizon, I think they're going to go the way of the pterodactyl. I, I like to use the dodo bird. Well, I was going to yeah, I was going to yep. I was going to use dodo bird, but when he I decided to use pterodactyl, but pick one. I think they're both extinct. Uh, Ted Rawl. Well, you know, I mean, it's really the two-party system um, that's, uh, you know, sort of on the ropes here. Because, I mean, you know, you have uh, you have the dinosaur Democratic Party with no uh, sort of minor league farm system that's uh, pushing younger, uh, you know, appealing, charismatic uh, politicians up from the trenches uh, into the national arena. Uh, but they're still sort of a majority party when it comes to voter registration. Uh, you have Republicans who are a minority party, according to voter registration, but are more enthused. Uh, and basically, there's sort of a, a rough parity because of their advantage in, uh, you know, gerrymandering, uh, redistricting, and and so, and so on, and voter suppression. But it's almost like, uh, you know, the Harlem Globetrotters had to have the Washington Generals, right? It's kind of like these two parties need each other. They're in a dance macabre. They have to have each other as enemies in order to justify their own existence for fundraising. Uh, and so the whole I'm wondering when we get to the point where uh, voters and citizens just realize that this is all a farce. I mean, the Democrats are definitely in deep trouble. Um, but, you know, the thing is, they have no solutions. They have no uh but no expressed solutions for what's coming uh, for what's what's coming down the pike economically as the stock market tanks and inflation rages and prices are out of control, uh, you know, not just fuel. Um, but Republicans probably don't have a plan either. Right. So, oh, we know that we can have this conversation. conversation. Yeah. Well, they'll just rake it in. Right. But I mean, the point is the people suffer either way. Um, you know, the contradiction with the Democrats is, of course, that they tend, they pretend to be the, the party of the people. And, of course, that's obviously not true about $300 million Nancy Pelosi and the rest of her gang. Jim Cavanaugh, listening to you all just, just brought this to mind, and this is something that we've talked about on the show before. For as dire as the uh, predictions are for the Democrats in the midterms, with the 
release of the draft opinion from the Supreme Court on abortion? Have the will the Democrats have stumbled upon some salvation as the outrage of women, particularly white middle class women, some of whom defected uh, the Virginia election, gubernatorial election being an example of how Glenn Youngkin played that critical race theory card and was able to draw uh, middle class suburban women back to the Republican Party. Is it possible that the leak of that uh, Roe decision uh, could bring those women over to the Democrats and in spite of Joe Biden's poor showing that they could turn out and vote in response to that leaked opinion? Well, yeah, as Ted pointed out for a while, this is a two-party system problem and people are leaving both parties. And what you have is that's why the question of who's generating enthusiasm in a particular election is very important, because you have this close split among the two two parties that people are allowed to vote for. And the people who don't want to vote for either don't vote, which is the majority of people by majority of voters, probably eligible voters. And you have so you have a race that hinges, especially in local districts and in, in, in the states and in localities on enthusiasm. And this is going to help drive enthusiasm for the Democrats. I think there's no question about it. It's going to help to prevent people who otherwise, you know, are fed up with the Democrats for all the good reasons. Uh, the Democratic members of the Democratic constituency, traditional Democratic constituency, it's going to prevent them from not voting, and more of them will vote than will have withheld their vote. So that, that will, I think, net help the Democrats. But kid yourself not, you know, it, it's not it, it's not a. a, a It'll, it'll be a net help to the Democrats, but it'll also drive some Republican voters who, who see the chance here to uh, create legislation in the, in the states that will flatly outlaw abortion. But I think you're right. It will, it'll, it'll help to close the enthusiasm gap somewhat, although I don't think enough. Yeah, we got a, and we got a long time between now then and oh, yeah. now. And if gas is 7 or $8 a gallon, which it will be. Extinction level event. The Buffalo, the Buffalo guy, the, the teenager who was involved in the massacre in Buffalo, the tragic situation there, had a, a picture of himself with a, a Nazi insignia known as the Black Sun. He had a some writing online where he had the Black Sun. The Christchurch shooter in New Zealand who shot 50 people, killed 50 people and wounded like 30 to 50 more. He also had, at the time he, he, he had, did that, he had a, um, a insignia with the Black Sun and the Azov Battalion. And we've got another story, I'll just throw this in there, when, where NATO shared a picture of a Ukrainian soldier who had a black son, which happens to be part of the Azov Battalion's insignia. Start with you, Ted Rawl. Your thoughts on how this lionizing of the Azov Battalion Nazis, and I would argue that it certainly means you're pushing the Nazi ideology, how that affects this. And is this something we got to worry about? A bunch of young, impressionable people now who are going to be running into mosques and churches and black supermarkets and Jewish temples, et cetera, firing at random because uh, we're pushing these um, Nazis as though they're some kind of great heroes. General. Well, I mean, you know, I think it's, there's always a danger of overstating the you know, political influence on, uh, you know, 
people who are mentally disturbed and, and commit these kinds of uh, mass shootings. But that said, uh, you know, the culture of violence uh, is often blamed uh, in general for, you know, a country, you know, we solve our problems with violence. Uh, you know, our, our pop culture shows it, our video games, our movies, and our politicians make jokes about drones and they, um, they, they, they brag about assassinating uh, people extrajudicially. So, I mean, I think the fact that uh, certainly in the same way that Donald Trump gave aid and comfort to uh, the far right and that many people on the extreme right, including white nationalists, uh, took a lot of uh, you know, comfort in his presidency and the fact that he was you know, elected and had that so much uh, mainstream support. I mean, you have to sort of say, well, I mean, when you have the media uh, pushing this and the president of the United States and the Congress pushing this narrative, this pro-Ukraine narrative, and then at, to be, let's just say, charitable, uh, sweep, at bare minimum, sweeping the Nazi, the you know the the, the actual Nazi influence in uh, Ukrainian military and in its political class under the rug, right? That's the bare minimum that they're doing. Well, lots of countries have Nazis. Well, not really in their parliaments, right? And not really in their military, um, not at all, right? It's like, well, we have Nazis in our military. Yeah, but they don't wear Nazi insignia, you know? Um, they have to keep those tattoos covered up under their uniforms. Uh, there is a difference, you know? And so I think uh, you know, ex- extremists like this kid who's self-radicalized from the internet by all accounts, um, you know, he is... Um, you know, he, he's inspired by things. And it's like, of course, obviously, you know, hey, you're looking at stuff that you think is cool when you're 18 years old. And if you're, uh, a, you know, a young neo-Nazi, you look for like the coolest, neatest <laughs> neo-Nazis around. A lot of them are in the ASOS Battalion. Jim Cavanaugh. Yeah, I think Ted was spot on this. And so, you know, this guy obviously had problems. He, I, I, I've actually looked into this a little bit. I read some of his manifesto. But, you know, as a kid, he beat to death and beheaded his cat. Uh, you know, so, you know, before the Azov Battalion came around in his life, he had psychological problems and was obsessively violent. And he was, the school warned them about it. Uh, you know, so his parents knew about it. The school knew about it. He says in his, uh, in, in his manifesto, it was the Christchurch shooter in New Zealand that was learning about that from the Internet. He was his inspiration, the Christchurch shooter in New Zealand. The Christchurch shooter in New Zealand took as a model the Azov Battalion and was in Ukraine, went to Ukraine to learn from the Azov Battalion. So both of these things are at work. You have people who have serious obsessions with violence and psychological problems. And the neo-Nazi ideology is extremely becomes something when they come upon it becomes something that then they take to an extreme and it, it motivates them further. So that's that I think is the the, the dynamic going on, the reciprocal dynamic going on, the self-reinforcing dynamic. Uh, and uh, 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 so, you know, uh, we we see this happening. And but you do have the other side of that coin is the Azov battalion, not just the Azov battalion, but Ukrainian. Fascism and nationalism have become deeply entwined. And since 2014, there's been a sea change in the they've become part of the government, of the military, and they've changed the cultural and social ideology of that country. You don't it would be as if everybody in this country over the past five years had not taken down the statues of 
Confederates and racists, but had taken down the statues of the Union people and put up statues and changed if we started taking down the statues of Martin Luther King, we started glorifying the segregationists. That's what's happened in Ukraine over the past, since 2014. They've glorified the Nazis, not the Podinian. They glorified the Hitlerian Nazis. They glorified their history of collusion and, co- and cooperation with Hitler. And so that's become part of the... And other Nazi groups around the world, most especially in Europe, who are organized and are dangerous, see the Nazis in Ukraine as a model and an inspiration. And it is the case, and I'll say it, if they win in Ukraine, it's going to activate and, and, and enhance those, those groups, and they will take that as a model for further action. Ted Rawl, when I listened to Joe Biden's speech from Buffalo and he talked about white supremacy and that it's, you know, in, it's insidious and, and he was responding to the actions of this 18 year old. But when I read, for example, um, Pat Buchanan's book, The Death of the West, how dying populations and immigrant invasions imperil our country and civilization. When I listened to, for, well, he at the time, Congressman Stephen King, who's on television saying, you can't build your civilization with somebody else's babies. You've got to keep your birth rate up. You know, the narrative now is this replacement theory is some extreme right-wing racist uh, you know, ideology that is so far outside the norm and beyond the pale. But no, Pat Buchanan was a speechwriter for Richard Nixon. Stephen King was a congressman reelected a number of times from Iowa. So this isn't as far out there as they want to make it out to believe. I don't think Joe Biden spoke to the right elements of the of white supremacy in the United States and how prevalent it is amongst his own brethren, if not himself. Ted Rawl. Agreed. And, you know, even more disturbing is the way that sort of these demographic uh, trends are reported by, you know, corporate media uh, outlets. I remember uh, first reading maybe about 10 years ago um, some article about a census prediction that uh, whites are – uh, we're about to become less than 50% of the population in the United States that that had been projected. And, um, and like the, I mean, I, and I, one thing that frustrates me parenthetically is the way that, uh, you know, that people address this theory. I mean, it is a fact that demographic trends are, are making this country more diverse. The point is that it doesn't, that no one should care. And that's like really like what nobody's, you know, it's kind of like to say, well, this is a, you know, a theory that's not true. No, I mean, it's true. There's there's demographic trends that are making this country less white. Uh, that's happening in Western Europe, too. That's the thing. And that's the part that we that people need to say. It's like it doesn't matter, um, you know, and it's 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 like <laughs> it's it's so ridiculous. On so many levels. I mean, governments have been concerned about low birth rates historically. For example, France, after World War I, when they lost so many males, 
uh, basically for a hundred years now, they've been paying people to have babies. Uh, they, they give you incredible tax incentives. Uh, Nazi Germany was worried about it after World War One. They gave medals and money to people to have kids. These things, not only is this theory like kind of stupid because it's the implication is that somehow this is going to lead to a worse world, but on top of that, there's no solution to it. No, no one has ever succeeded in changing their, uh, their birth rate. You know, it's like, well, you know, if we all hold, you know, if we all flush the toilet at the same time, the Pentagon might blow up or, you know, the point is, but we're not going to, right? And it's just like, people are not going to, people don't make family planning decisions based on these like theories, regardless of whether they're worthwhile or not. And let me say, Everyone listening at 7 o'clock, flush your toilets. Uh, Jim Cavanaugh, <laughs> Ted Raw, gentlemen both. Think, sorry, uh, Jim, we're out of, out of time. Thank you both so much. Enjoy your weekends. And again, at 7 o'clock, everybody, flush your toilets. We look forward to having you guys back. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Mariupol fighters ordered to stop fighting. Uh, the remaining Ukrainian fighters at the Avostol steel plant have received orders to stop fighting and give up their defense of their last foothold in the city of Mariupol. I think that's called surrender. Evacuation. Oh, evacuation. Thank you. <laughs> uh, or running for your life. Yeah, how about that? Uh, for insight they in this. They evacuated with a white flag. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, not, I don't know. And their hands up. Exactly. We turn to our next guest. He's an American citizen living in Crimea. He's a film director and podcaster, Regis Tremblay. Regis, welcome back. Well, thank you very much for having me back. Always a pleasure. So it's reported hundreds of fighters evacuated the besieged facility in a negotiated surrender between Moscow and Kiev, but it's unclear how many are still inside. Give us your take. How is this being reported there? What's going on, Regis? Well, this is huge news here in Russia. Um, it's been reported by the spokesperson for the uh, military defense uh, ministry. And it's been reported by Shoigu, the head of the Russian armed forces. And um, the numbers are incredible. Uh, to date, uh, 1,908 of them have laid down their arms. Previously, 1,387 Marines had laid down their arms. And um, in terms of the Azovstal um, steel mill and the underground, the cavernous underground there, um, it seems like it has pretty much been um, evacuated. Well, not evacuated. They've, they've surrendered. And of course, Kiev is spinning it as an evacuation. And uh, you just can't believe anything coming from from Kiev or 
from the United States. Everything is, you know, is 180 degree categorical lie. So that was greeted with great news here. Let me ask you this, because there's been that and uh, I've been you know, following a lot of things online, a lot of stuff on Telegram. And it appears that there are throughout the Donbass area, there are a lot of soldiers who, you know, they get caught in cauldrons, et cetera. And that there seems to be a lot of people who are kind of throwing up their hands and throwing in the towel. Do you think that this is something that because it's put forth, these are the heroes, the best fighters, they're Nazis. And I don't think it's healthy to say that about Nazis. But that be, that aside, that something like this can cause a dramatic problem with uh, morale on the side of the Ukrainian fighters. Well, Garland, you're exactly right. Uh, Vladimir Kozin on my show last night made a point of this. Uh, he said the fact that they've been coming out and there's been video showing them been being treated uh, with respect, with dignity. Uh, they're patted down. They're put on buses. And they're going to holding places in uh, the Donetsk People's Republic. And he thinks that, um, that many, many more, knowing how they've been treated, uh, that they are still alive. They're not being brutalized. They're not being beaten, and they will be put on trial. And he's saying that it's appearing to these others that life is better than death. And basically, it's a suicide for them to com- to continue fighting. So I think we're going to see more and more of these uh, uh, the National Ukrainian Army people surrendering. Not sure about the Azov people, but we'll see in the next couple of days. I was surprised in reading the Washington Post account of this that they said that this was a negotiated surrender between Moscow and Kiev. That negotiated surrender to me coming in the Washington Post speaks volumes to me. And I find it – I wondered if – this is the, if they're able to negotiate this surrender, then I would think that they can negotiate just about anything. Well, I have to laugh when I read that and heard it. I don't think there was anything negotiating about it. I okay. negotiated about it. It was uh, just a flat out surrender. The negotiation was we shoot you or you put your hands up and, and get on the bus. Or you starve to death down there. Right. OK. Uh, you know, there, there was nothing negotiated about this. Well, but but to the larger point. Just okay, so they, they surrendered, which then because I remember in, in I remember hearing when this whole thing first started that the soldiers were threatened if they surrendered, they'd be shot by their own people. Correct, correct. So it doesn't make much sense. On the one hand, when they're told uh, if you surrender, you'll be shot by your own people down there, or by us if you ever get out of there, and now saying. They were ordered to surrender. It's like, come on, which way is it? The other thing I think that is of consequence is, and and, and I mean this, you know, we saw lots of videos. We saw in, you know, lots of stuff. The way they were treated, my understanding is that a lot of um, Ukrainian soldiers have been told, and, you know, this happens in every war. This is not anything unusual. They were told that if the Russians get you, they'll torture you, they'll beat you, you know, they'll boil you alive, the usual kinds of stuff, right? And the fact that, I, I mean, I saw the videos and I saw the video 
videos on Western TV. I, you know, not much, but I saw it online. You can find the stuff. And basically, there. I'll put it like this. I was a police officer, retired police officer. That's kind of what how I did, people. You pat them down a little bit. You put them in a wagon and off they go. There was no beating. There was no boiling alive. And doesn't that kind of, to the other soldiers— in Ukraine, ones that are unfortunately they're surrounded and they're in a bad situation. I don't want to see any a lot of young men get wiped out for just for Joe Biden and his crazies or Victoria Nuland. Doesn't that kind of send a message to them that, well, you're being told you're going to be murdered. You will be treated under international law. You'll get medical treatment if you need it. You'll be fed and you'll be treated like a human being. Your thoughts? Well, yeah, that, that's exactly what Russia is saying uh, publicly that they, they're going to divide these fighters into three or four categories. Number one is the Azotov neo-Nazis. Okay, they're going to be arrested, they're going to be jailed, they're going to be interrogated, interrogated, and they're going to be put on trial. Russia's going to have a war trial tribunal uh, for each and every one of them. The next group are the National Army of Ukraine. Um, they will be interrogated probably put on trial, but there's a third group. If they have not done any crimes, crimes mean you've not killed anybody on either side, you've not been involved in any brutality, you will be allowed to return in a prisoner exchange. And so Russia is really serious about this. Um, those who have fought and killed, and for example, in the Donbass, Anybody who's been involved in that is going to be put on trial as a war criminal, and their fate will not be very good. Another interesting thing, uh, there's no capital punishment in Russia, but there is in Donetsk, in the Donbass. And who knows what they will do uh, in terms of a sentence for those who are found guilty. Is there a category for foreign mercenaries, foreign fighters? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I should have. That that was the fourth category. They they have no rights whatsoever under international law, the Geneva Convention. They're war profiteers. Uh, they're there for adventure, whatever it is, and they have no rights. Their, their fate um, will be the worst. And the bottom line is Russia can do whatever it chooses because they have no rights. If it wants to let them go, if it wants to send them to the salt, Siberian salt mines, if it wants to anything that they don't have any they don't have anything. Well, let's uh, something else I wanted to bring up and, and uh, that I think of is of consequences. And I want to hear your thoughts, thoughts on it. Italy has proposed a, a peace plan. Now, this is covered in RT. The ambitious proposal would reportedly require compromises, which Ukraine has refused to make. Certainly, we understand the new Lynn people. We understand that um, Zelensky, let's be honest, he's a puppet. He's not making any decision. However, here's what I think it shows. that There are people in the EU that are taking some heavy pressure because of the economic blowback from the sanctions. And I think they're saying to the U.S. empire, look, we got to find that. Like this is the opening salvo from Europe to the, to the U.S. empire saying, look, we got to find a, an end to this thing or all our governments are going to fall. Your thoughts? Well, uh, I'll go back a little bit. Even France, uh, Macron, he's been looking for a new security uh, agreement and, you know, talking about having his own army and pulling away from NATO, have a European army. Uh, that indicates a crack in the, uh, the Atlantic alliance. Uh, Germany, 
my God, Germany has been hit the hardest. Um, th their heads of industry are really unhappy with this because they're having to close down plants. They're losing billions of dollars because they can't get the Russian gas. Uh, food prices are going out of sight all across uh, Western and, and uh, Eastern Europe. The people cannot afford gas. I mean, it's a catastrophe that's happening there right now, and it's not really being reported openly. The fact that Italy is begging for a peace treaty, um, it isn't just because they want peace. It's, it's because they're starving. There's political chaos. The pushback from the people in all of these countries is rising because they cannot survive financially. You hit the nail on the head. I think it shows a huge fracture, not only in the EU, but in NATO. Now, talking about NATO, and we've got Sweden and Finland that have expressed interest in joining NATO, and Erdogan says that Turkey is opposed to it and that it's not going to happen. Now, Sweden has said, we want to join NATO, but no nuclear weapons in our country, and we're not going to host any bases. Finland says basically the same thing. So that's like begging to go to a dinner party, but saying you're not going to eat. Talk about the symbolism behind this, and where do you see Erdogan's play here? Is he holding firm in his position, or do you think that he's trying to extract a pound of flesh? Oh, he's trying to extract a pound of flesh. Uh, he wants some, some ethnic situations and problems solved in his favor, and he'll probably get those concessions, and then he'll vote to let them in. He's been playing all sides of this, uh, this conflict that's been going on for decades between Russia and the West, Russia and NATO. It's amazing they've let him get away with it. Um, the symbolism of Sweden and Finland going into NATO for Russia is huge. Um, Russia has no intentions of attacking anybody, and Russia knows that NATO, the United States, may not have official bases in Sweden and Finland, but they've been doing war games in those countries. Uh, they have satellite uplink and downlink stations uh, to download, download information that can be used for war uh, or just for eavesdropping. So they've really been part of NATO all along. This will just make it official. And what Russia is going to do is they will have a counter-reaction. Uh, they're already mobilizing various units to that part of the border to defend themselves from possible missile attacks or whatever. So it's, uh, it's not good news for Russia. They don't like it. And, you know, it's just another indication of um, the other side upping the ante just about every day. I, I did want to ask you this, too, because we often, uh, you know, one of the things that we cover here is the strategic alliance, as they call it, that's more than a friendship between Russia and China. We see the U.S., you know, doing the same thing on, you know, virtually the same thing on China's border that they're doing on, on Russia's border with Taiwan. Ch uh, China has been making some, you know, very, very clear admonishments <laughs> recently. Your thoughts on the strength of that relationship, clearly, I believe, 
believe that China sees this as they want to get Russia out of the way so they can then go after China, which, of course, that's not going to work. But your thoughts on the relationship with China and Russia, where that is now, how that's advancing, how that plays into this whole dynamic? Oh, boy. Uh, Russia is sending more gas uh, and fuel, more wheat. China is buying, picking up the slack almost everywhere. Um, the statement that was made by Xi and Putin on February 4th, people should put that in the bank. The relationship is even tighter than an alliance in all areas, economic, political, developmental, technology, and military. And so people need to be aware that this is the future, and China and Russia have declared that. We are moving into a new world order without you, America and Europe. That was, is very emphatic. Nobody should question that. Unfortunately, nobody should question it, but those in decision-making positions on the foreign policy side in the United States are doing everything in their power to fight it. So how do you see, how do you see this playing itself out as it relates to Taiwan, for example? Is the United States trying to push this as close to the edge as possible without war? We've, you got a $40 billion bill that just got passed out of the Senate to send weapons and other things into Ukraine. The United States seems to want to escalate the situation, not solve the situation. I cannot imagine that Tony Blinken and the crew are so myopic and tone deaf that they can actually think that these are fights that they can win. I, I don't know, uh, Garland and Wilmer. I, I think they do think they can win. Uh, I think there's some of them that are absolutely crazy and think that they could even win a nuclear war. Um, they are so ideologically encased. Um, they cannot think outside of that ideology. And, you know, you're right. They're pushing China right to the edge right to the very edge. China is not going to take it very much longer. Um, and in terms of wanting to defeat Russia first before they take on China, there's no way that the United States or NATO can win any kind of a war with Russia. In fact, they are failing miserably in Ukraine, miserably. Um, you know, you cannot believe anything that's coming from any of them. You know, Blinken is on Stephen Colbert the other night, um, you know, and he's talking about how the Russian economy is in shambles and, you know, there's inflation and recession and Putin has no support. I don't know what planet he's on or what radio he's listening to, but I mean, he is so out of touch or or so ide ideologically encased that he cannot say anything else. Well, you know, I, 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 oh, you know, Regis, I was going to say this. There, here's the part of it, too, in, ideologically encased. They are talking also to the American people. They can't tell the American people that the war of economic attrition has gone disastrously wrong and is backfiring. Um, I, my understanding is that certainly the um, there has been some damage done to the Russian 
um, e- economy, but that f- the f- the the fuel and energy costs in in Europe are you know prohibitive for survival just about, and that the the the, the fuel and energy costs in Russia haven't gone through the roof, and that that the EU seems to be getting the bad end of this uh, economic war of attrition deal. Your thoughts? The EU and the United States. Look, I can tell you this. I'm living here. I was just in Moscow last week for the May 9th celebrations. Uh, Life is going on as normal. There's no hardship. There's no pain. Uh, I marched in the March 9th, March of the uh, Immortal Regiment. There was over 1 million people marched in that. And the whole way they're singing songs, Russian patriotic songs. And what I didn't hear in 2017 when I marched was chants throughout the entire march, Russia, Russia. This is because they united. This was a demonstration of unity behind their country and behind their president. It was so obvious. I have to tell you, Russia is not lacking in any food. It, has, it, it, it is completely self-sustaining now in terms of energy, in terms of food, in terms of resources, This country does not need the rest of the world. I'm going to add something else. Wheat exports. India has just said they will not use any more exports of grain because they need it first for their own people. India and Russia are now trading. India is buying gas for rubles, as are many other countries. The writing is on the wall. It's all over for a collapsing, economically, politically, culturally collapsing West. And where is China in this? Because, again, as the United States continues to fan the flames with Taiwan, uh, and to your point, you don't see President Xi taking this much longer as the United States continues to send destroyers and aircraft carriers into the South China Sea, uh, all I see is the United States sending targets for China to sink. Yeah, no, absolutely. All of those ships are a target. But I, I posted something uh, the other day about China uh, coming to the rescue, the cavalry. Uh, here comes the cavalry uh, to, to rescue Russia uh, in whatever Russia is being deprived of internationally, China is going to take care of it. Um, and the cavalry has arrived. They're buying everything from Russia. Russia and China are, com- are, are, are working together technologically. They're forming their own new space uh, program that will, then they're not going to use the International Space Station. They're going to have their own. Uh, America is being left just by the wayside. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's really very clear to see what's been happening for those people who are willing to open their eyes and their ears, the handwriting, you know, it's spray-painted graffiti all over the walls. What about if we factor in another region, the global south, uh, as we look at Venezuela, as we look at Nicaragua, uh, the, the, a, a number of countries in the global south are turning to China and are turning to Russia Uh, away from the United States. It looks as though the U.S. is losing on all fronts. Uh, You're you're incredibly right. Um, You know, the United States, I don't know, Blinken or maybe even Biden said it, um, we've got 30 allied countries behind us in punishing Russia and trying to do everything we can to take down Russia. 
the the people in the southern hemisphere and in Asia outnumber in population, in GDP, in their alliances by a long shot over what the United States is claiming it has. The southern hemisphere is going to be part of the China, Russia, India, Pakistan, Iranian, Venezuelan, Middle America, Central America, and South America. This is going to be the new world order. And the United States of America and Europe are going to be left out of it. You made a really good point about the Southern Hemisphere. They've, they're fed up with the colonialism. They're fed up with being raped and pillaged and, and murdered. They're people murdered really for centuries. They're fed up with neoliberalism. Well, you know, I was just uh, telling someone that I've been covering the issues in Ethiopia, uh, and I've had a lot of people, um, Ethiopians, contact me. They're furious here at the the Ethiopians, and there are a lot of them that live in the U.S. They're furious at the U.S. government. Joe Biden just sent more troops to Somalia here recently, and the Africans are furious. And a friend of mine said he was in at some kind of a march, it was in Ethiopia. It was in Ethiopia. They were marching against the TPLF, and the people in the march had Russian and Chinese flags. So the the, the people in Africa are really getting furious. Now, now there are some corrupt leaders certainly that are bought off, but the people, the man and woman on the street, are really getting furious. It appears. Regis, I agree with you. I'm reading the same tea leaves. Um, you know, Africa has been colonized, raped, and pillaged for centuries, and they see now and a, a new world order emerging, and they want to be part of it. China has been building infrastructure throughout Africa and not doing to them what the IMF and the World Bank do, you know, indebting them, bankrupting them forever. So they see a different new world. And it's, uh, it, it's going to be very, the United States doesn't have anything in their little toolkit to react to or overcome what's going on except military threats. And that's where I say that uh, imperial hegemons don't go quietly into the good night. So President Xi has been patient. President Putin has been patient. Maduro has been patient. But Iran has been patient. But I see the patience wearing thin. And no one wins a nuclear conflict. So what direction do we go? Uh, well, if you're a person who prays, I'd suggest getting on your knees and pray. Um, otherwise, um, we can't do much more than be spectators trying to, uh, to tell the truth. Uh, it's really out of our hands. And, you know, I made a film, 30 Seconds to Midnight, about this very same thing. I said at the end of the film, well, those crazed neocons, or whatever you want to call them in Washington, realizing they've lost this epic battle for the future order of the world, take the whole world down with them in a nuclear Armageddon. We are that close right now. Let me ask you this. You went to um, the, the Victory Day celebration. What was your experience there? What was the morale uh, of with the Russian people like? It was an overwhelming emotional experience. Imagine marching with over a million people in a march that was over five kilometers long, winding up in Red Square with the Kremlin on one side, St. Isaac's Basilica in front of you, and this mass of people singing and chanting 
and smiling. I made a video about the march uh, while I was in it. And uh, it's, it's, it's an incredible, amazing experience. All I can say is morale in Russia is extremely high. The government and Putin have approval ratings in the middle 80th percentile. 80th percentile. Um, I, I can't tell you. It, life is really quite wonderful throughout Russia. There are problems in Russia like there are everywhere else. There are problems with poverty, with pensioners who really can't live on a meager pension. Um, and there are people in politics who are Western-leaning liberals who would love to join the West. And this is the political uh, problem that Putin has had to deal with for 22 years. On the other side of it are conservative, patriotic Russians who want no part of the West, no part of the Western economy. So this is a, a political battle going on inside of Russia. But in spite of that, life here is good. The quality of life is good. People are happy and people are going about life just like they would if this conflict wasn't even happening. So the idea of uh, devaluing the ruble to the point of crushing the Russian economy, which then causes internal unrest, which then leads to the overthrow of Vladimir Putin, it doesn't sound like that's happened yet. The, the ruble today, I just read, is at its highest point in value compared to the dollar and the euro, the highest ever. <laughs> So, so I, I guess to Tony Blinken about, needs to rethink, his, re, needs to do a little more math. Well, I think Tony Blinken ought to send somebody over here and get somebody, if there's anybody left in the State Department over here, to, to tell them what the hell is going on. Regis Tremblay, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that insight and analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thanks again, guys. Folks, you've been listening to the Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened. And we look forward to talking with you all right here next week on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Enjoy your weekends. Peace and blessings. Oh, everybody flush your toilets at 7 o'clock. <laughs> we're out. <laughs>